ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. ACAST.com. Hey there, Foreign Policy's podcast team here. We wanted to share one more episode of our climate change podcast with you, Heat of the Moment. Listen in as the godmother of climate security shares her experience adapting the U.S. military to climate change. This past October, the United States released its first ever national intelligence estimate on climate change. And not surprisingly, it had some alarming findings. The new report says climate change poses a mounting threat to U.S. security and that it would fuel global tensions, especially in developing countries. Tensions are already popping up around the world on things like water rights. A dam built by Ethiopia on the largest tributary of the Nile River has set off a global fight over water. And migration caused by climate disasters. Experts believe millions of people will be displaced by climate change over the next half century. In the United States, it's long been known that rising sea levels are threatening to flood coastal military bases. There's sea level rise. It threatens our installations. Our ships can float. Our bases cannot. The U.S. military is one of the largest consumers of fossil fuels in the world. Yet what's less known is that the military also has been a place for innovation and strategic thinking when it comes to responding to the climate crisis. And that's thanks in no small part to our guest today, Sherry Goodman, who is considered to be the godmother of climate security. Goodman is currently a senior fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and the senior strategist at the Center for Climate and Security. We characterize climate change as a threat multiplier, a phrase I coined that has really stuck and been used to address how climate change amplifies and aggravates other threats and risks we face, whether it's terrorism, uh, weapons of mass destruction, violent extremists, and that now has been a way we've looked at climate risks in the security community for the last 15 years. We'll hear her story on today's program. You're listening to Heat of the Moment, a podcast about the climate crisis and those who are working to fix it. I'm John Sutter. With a problem as massive as climate, Individual actions only go so far. Sure, it would be great if all of us took shorter showers and ate less meat, but experts agree it's institutional change that's going to make the difference. And that's why it's worth taking a look at how this has played out in the U.S. military. The U.S. military itself is massive. There are about 750 bases in at least 80 countries. In 2021, the defense budget was more than $700 billion. That's more than the next 11 countries spent on their militaries combined. With that comes a mountain of carbon pollution. Given the scale, any one change in policy has massive ripple effects. 
This ability to make big change is what got Sherry Goodman interested in public service in the first place. From an early age, she knew she wanted to make an impact. My parents escaped from the Holocaust. They were both born in Germany in the early 1930s, and they were among the fortunate few who were able to get out in 1938 to the United States. And so growing up as the firstborn American daughter of Holocaust refugees, I always knew that it was important to address the greatest global challenges of the day and to never again let what happened during the Holocaust with the loss of six million lives and many more occur again. So during the Cold War, when I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, the greatest global threat of that era was a potential bolt out of the blue nuclear attack by the Soviet Union and the fascist regime that it represented. And so I devoted my early years and professional life to combating the nuclear threat. You know, another shaping force for me uh, growing up was the fact that women were able to enter fields that had previously been closed to them. Uh, And so that was always apparent to me. I went to a college that had been all male till just before I, I went there. And so doors were opening and opportunities were increasing in new and different fields. So I was always inspired by international affairs and diplomacy. And I recall classes I took in college at Amherst on diplomatic history, and that fascinated me about the decisions made by presidents and senior leaders. So I pursued the studies in nuclear weapons and arms control. In fact, I wrote a book, which was a version of my college uh, thesis on the neutron bomb. I told the story of alliance politics and decision-making about nuclear weapons and technology and how governments and bureaucracies work. And I learned a lot about decision-making at the highest levels of government by doing that research. And I then worked after college at a consulting firm that did work for the Department of Defense on nuclear weapons and arms control. And I dove deeper into that field. It was a time when we used uh, old-style manual spreadsheets to count the number of nuclear weapons that you would need to hold various targets in the Warsaw Pact at risk, now uh, obsolete, uh, thankfully, science. And then I went uh, to graduate school, and after that, I had the opportunity to uh, break down sort of another barrier and serve as the first female professional staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee. I was assigned to oversee the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons complex, which is where the factories that we use to make uh, nuclear weapons and fissile material and included nuclear reactors and processing plants. And in the 1980s, all of those facilities failed for environment safety and health lapses uh, that had long gone unrecognized. And so I say sometimes my career went from weapons to waste. And then when we started uh, investigating and um, looking at those environment safety and health lapses of the nuclear weapons complex, how to clean it up. And that opened up a whole set of new doors for me in the in what became the environmental security field. 
I mean, I'm just kind of in awe, frankly, of your uh, career trajectory and of, uh, you know, I think it's a lot of people have the inclination to shrink away from big, big global challenges like existed in the Cold War and, and like we face now with the climate crisis. And, you know, the fact that throughout your career, you've pushed at those head on, I just think is really impressive. Um, what, like sort of what led you to see global warming in the same light as nuclear proliferation and like sort of other massive existential global challenges like when when was that and do you remember kind of how that awakening so to speak like came about I joined the Department of Defense in 1993 as the first deputy undersecretary of defense for environmental security and at that time the major environmental challenges facing the defense department and indeed the nation were the cleanup of past contaminants, uh, hazardous waste and toxic waste at Superfund sites, contaminated waterways and air pollution. And much of my time at the Department of Defense was devoted to helping the DOD and the U.S. military put in place the programs and people needed to clean up that past pollution. In fact, we cleaned up hundreds of Superfund sites, uh, restored many waterways, protected endangered species. In fact, many military bases are islands of nature because they've been undeveloped and are used for training and not for intense local development. So during that period, we focused on moving the Department of Defense from being seen as an environmental laggard to what it is seen as today, an environmental and clean energy leader. Powered by the desert sun, that's Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, which now gets 25% of its electricity from these 72,000 solar panels. The carbon footprint that it saves is 24 tons, about the same amount of, as 185,000 cars. That's a lot of cars. During the late 1990s, we first focused on climate change in the context of the Kyoto negotiations in 1997. We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. In doing so, however, we must not waver in our resolve. And that was really the first time we looked in a dedicated way at what type of greenhouse gas emissions military activities produce how you could reduce that and how we would apply that across the whole Department of Defense. And that was a very complex exercise. In fact, the United States, um, for the 1997 Kyoto Protocol negotiations, I sent two uniformed military leaders on the delegation that went to Kyoto, Japan, for that negotiation. And they were widely recognized uh, for their talents and their abilities to help um, everyone on the delegation, whether it meant just bringing them coffee late at night or negotiating part of the agreement. And many were surprised that the United States had uniform military on the Kyoto negotiating team, but they were all very pleasantly surprised when they met the two individuals, uh, a Navy and an Air Force officer who served with such great distinction. I want to take a moment before I leave to comment on the outcome of the climate change negotiations that have just been completed in Japan. I am very pleased that the United States has reached a truly historic agreement with other nations of the world to take unprecedented steps to address the global problem of climate change. 
So we looked, we began to examine uh, greenhouse gas emissions from military activities. And I then commissioned the first Defense Science Board study to look at this in a specific way from weapon systems. And we called it Improved Performance by Reduced Fuel Burden. And you'll notice that the words climate change don't appear anywhere in that title. And that was very deliberate because we started this study in 1999. And we knew that it wouldn't be completed and released until the beginning of the next administration in 2001. We didn't know what administration that would be or how friendly they would be to addressing climate change activities, but we wanted it to be relevant to military operational activities. And indeed it was. It was really the first study done with inside the Department of Defense to look at how do you improve your military performance and fuel efficiency at the same time. That came out in 2001, but then 9-11 happened and attention went elsewhere in the United States for a number of years. By that time, I had moved to the Center for Naval Analysis, which is a think tank um, that works with the Department of Defense and the intelligence community and other parts of our national security community. And in um, 2006, we launched an effort to organize a military advisory board to address the national security implications of climate change. Uh, That military advisory board was the first such group of senior retired military leaders from all services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and representing all regional combatant commands from Central Command, Pacific Command, uh, Southern Command, with experience from infantry to the nuclear Navy. And we spent a year of study learning from the world's leading climate scientists. And in fact, most of these dozen military leaders knew nothing about climate before they joined. In fact, when I asked them, and I knew that each of them personally, they said to me, Sherry, we don't know anything about climate change. We're war fighters. And I said, okay, but go on this journey with me. Let's learn about climate change. Because each of them had, in their own way, during their service, also been leaders in environmental security in terms of cleaning up contamination in their service or conserving natural resources um, or imp- otherwise improving environmental performance. And so they were open, as most military leaders are, to learning. And so we learned from the world's leading climate scientists, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. And after a year of, of study and analysis, we published a landmark report, uh, Climate Change and the Threat to National Security, where we characterize climate change as a threat multiplier. Can you tell me a little bit more about that term threat multiplier? Because, I mean, as you mentioned, I do think that that has, has really stuck and in some ways shaped the way that um, people who study climate policy think about risks. I guess, what do you mean exactly by that term and how do you think it applies to the world today? Well, Take, for example, drought. We now live in a time where we have prolonged drought across much of the world, particularly North Africa and the Sahel, parts of the Middle East. These are also areas that suffer from persistent ethnic, tribal conflict and violent extremists. There are already many of them fragile states with inadequate governance capacities and state capacities. When you add climate change, which aggravates drought, heat, sea level rise in, in certain places, that becomes a multiplier effect on the other conditions. 
Now, climate change can act as a threat multiplier, essentially driving conflict by deepening existing fault lines. What we see is it creates instability in countries. In fact, a 2017 report that as temperatures in the southern hemisphere rise, we'll see a greater asylum applications in Europe with almost a 100% probability. So, you know, you mentioned um, that there was a report in the 90s when you were deputy undersecretary of defense that specifically avoided the words climate change. I'm, I'm assuming because they could be politicized. I guess I'm just wondering, like, kind of generally what pushback you felt as someone who, you know, within the military um, was pushing for a reckoning with the climate crisis at a time when I'm guessing that wasn't, you know, the the opinion that everyone had. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Oh, I, I pushed back along the way on all aspects of the environmental agenda, of which climate was just one small piece in the 1990s. I mean, one of the early things we were trying to accomplish was to get recycling throughout the Pentagon, uh, the world's largest office building. I was having trouble getting the so-called mayor of the Pentagon, the person who basically ran office space and recycling bins in the Pentagon, to put more throughout the building. Because if you don't have enough recycling bins, people won't use them. They'll just throw things away. So I finally came up with the idea that I would ask the Secretary of Defense on Earth Day, so we had a recycling event on Earth Day, and that compelled the mayor of the Pentagon to showcase what they were doing for recycling. And that broke down some barriers. So you have to think of creative ways to break down barriers and address questions. I often tried to work with the senior leaders who I knew were open to new thinking. Uh, at that time in particular, um, General Gordon Sullivan, who was the Army Chief of Staff, and he re reset the Army uh, after the Cold War. Leadership culture starts from the very top, and he and others really enabled the Army and other the other services as well to begin to see how you could integrate environmental considerations both into realistic training and to improved uh, military performance. We have to get innovative, and we have to take risk. And we need to find people who are willing to stand up and say, look, we have to do something. Because if we don't do something, we're going to find up with the Atlantic Ocean in the back bay of Boston. And so today, when the Army and the Marine Corps train around the Longleaf Pine, where the Red Cockade Woodpecker lives in uh, eastern Carolinas, they use that tree as a an obstacle, realistic obstacle in their maneuver training. So instead of trying to cut down the tree and therefore the habitat of the red cockaded woodpecker as they used to do, now they build it into the training. So they've learned a lot of new creative ways to help manage military activities and uh, protect the environment. The same is true today when we think about how to address the climate crisis. The military is one of the nation's largest energy users. So when it addresses its energy consumption and improves its energy efficiency, it often now we know that it's also improving its military performance. And so we've gone to more renewables to power bases. In fact, some of the largest solar-powered homes 
found in the U.S. are on military bases. And the military has widely deployed microgrids for energy efficiency and more energy resiliency to withstand power outages like we now experience in extreme storm events at its bases around the country. Because remember, we need to have our military and our first responders available uh, to us to help in these times of crisis. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why, in your view, it's 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 so important that the military is engaged in not just a conversation about uh, about the climate crisis, but about implementing policy changes. Why do you see the military is so central to this conversation? Well, you know, our military affects the climate and is affected by it just directly. It's a very large organization with millions of people, and so what it does is affecting the climate every day. And also where we deploy our troops around the world, they're now affected by the rising sea levels and increased uh, heat and more persistent drought. So we're putting our sons and daughters, American sons and daughters, at risk when we don't give them the proper equipment, either to protect them from the extreme heat where they might deploy, or now because of retreating sea ice in colder temperatures in the Arctic. So We are learning that we need to better protect both the safety of our troops, the resilience of our military bases, which are like small cities and have all the same challenges with uh, infrastructure that our cities now face from extreme weather events, sea level rise, drought and flooding. And then we also see that it's changing where and how we deploy our forces. Over the last 10 years, we've increasingly deployed our military forces to respond to domestic natural disasters, hurricanes that come up the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic, three hurricanes in a row in in 2019, two of which really damaged military bases, Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, uh, home of the F-35, and many of the hangars were damaged from that storm and Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina that suffered very severe flooding, as well as off at Air Force Base in Nebraska, the home of Strategic Air Command that also suffered flooding during that year. So we've learned that we need to incorporate these risks as well as, uh, sometimes we call this an actorless threat. You know, the challenge with climate change is it's not a person, it's nature. And the other thing is, we know nature always wins. So we've got to better understand it. And the other great thing about our Defense Department, in conjunction with other national labs and science agencies, is that we're an engine of innovation for the nation. Think about the creation of the internet and GPS. These were all technologies that emerged from defense activities. And now the military, in many ways, is at the forefront of developing the new era of climate risk analytics that will help us better predict climate risks in the future and open up a whole new emerging field that brings weather forecasting closer to what we call short-term climate prediction or extended weather and short-term climate so that we have more reliable um, seasonal to subseasonal forecasting. That's very important both for military operations but really for all sectors of society. The global community has been, you know, somewhat critical of the U.S. over the years in terms of like, you know, international climate negotiations and being slower than, say, 
Europe to reduce its own carbon emissions. And I'm, I'm wondering to what degree you see it as, as like vital to U.S. national security to transform the economy and basically eliminate carbon pollution, like if you see that as possible, and, and to what degree that matters to our national security interests. Well, I think it's vital to America's place in the world and our global leadership that we be leaders uh, on climate change and climate security. Let's look back at history. The U.S. was very reluctant to engage with Europe and fight the Nazis in World War II. And we only came into the war in 1941 after we were directly attacked in Pearl Harbor. And by the time we came in in, in a real way, it was too late to save the six million that died. Now, can we address every crisis around the world? No. And we've learned that, unfortunately, the hard way in Afghanistan. We can't completely rebuild societies. But we can use our power and our might and our leadership to reduce the most grievous wrongs in the world and at the same time model the kind of future we want both for the United States and for the planet. And that's why getting climate security right is so important. I talk to, you know, quite a lot of people, and I'm sure you do as as well, who see, you know, all the headlines or are, are living like the very real impacts that you describe. And I think some people feel almost like paralyzed by the hugeness of this, right? Both in terms of the impacts, but also, you know, the need to decarbonize the economy, like essentially as fast as possible or certainly within the next few decades. And I'm wondering what keeps you in the face of such a huge challenge, like what keeps you moving and what gives you hope that we can tackle this crisis and beat it? Well, it's it's the next generation. It's my own children and uh, the young people serving in the military and the young veterans as well, many of whom are going into clean energy and climate analytics when they come out of their military service because they've seen it firsthand. Uh, they've seen that in Iraq and Afghanistan as we we're convoying fuel to the front that put the lives of our soldiers and Marines at risk. And so when we change the way we power our society, we can and power our military, we can reduce that risk and save lives. And so I've met many of these young veterans who are starting businesses in clean energy and clean tech, and they're all about powering the planet in better ways and reducing risk and, and lightening our footprint, or as sometimes we say in the military, reducing our carbon bootprint. Sherry Goodman, thank you so much for this conversation. It was, it was fascinating to speak with you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Sherry Goodman is a senior fellow at the Wilson Center, senior strategist at the Center for Climate and Security, and a former U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security. Next week, how developing countries burdened by debt are looking to mitigate the effects of climate change and get developed countries to help. Now there will be funding flows to actually be able to enforce regulations, to take both our existing protected areas, expand those so that we have larger areas to protect important reef sites and important fisheries and important habitats. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Zimone Perez. 
The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. One of the best ways to stay up to date is with a foreign policy subscription. And we have a special deal just for you. Head over to foreignpolicy.com to sign up and use the code HOTM for heat of the moment to get a 10% discount. And of course, as always, make sure you click that subscribe button and get updates about heat of the moment. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.